Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Piano Pod. I am Yukimi Song. I'm Clara Zhang. For anyone listening or watching our show for the first time, welcome. Clara and I are both classical pianists and piano teachers from New York City. This podcast is for anyone who plays the piano for fun, loves listening to the piano music, or for anyone who, who is currently pursuing a career in piano or works in the industry professionally, or anyone who is simply curious about the world of piano music. In each episode, we interview a guest speaker who has been breaking exciting new ground in the music industry. Before getting started, we want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please read our show and review on Apple Podcasts because every reading review will help people find our show. So for this episode, Clara, we have Mr. Nicholas McCarthy, one-handed pianist, Yamaha artist, and motivational speaker from the UK. Oh my goodness! Yes, yes, I know him. I remember uh, sharing this uh, podcast show mm-hmm. with you. Did I really, you know, connect the dots until just now? So I happened to find him on YouTube. You mm-hmm. know, as I was watching different mo- uh, video clips, and then it popped out, and he was on TED Talk, and Rian, he was. Uh, he is a pianist, but he is a one-handed pianist. He he was born without right hand, and so I got to listen to his story, and it was it, it, such a. He has this. I don't know. He was born with this musical ability, but also this. I don't know, like ability. I guess this. Hmm. You know, by uh, vibe, a positive vibe beaming yep. out of him. So I've always wanted to uh, interview him. Oh. Yeah. Such a unique combination from an artist, you know. So that's mm-hmm. so great. Yeah. So, and this episode actually is the last episode of season two, Clara. Wow, the oh. year went by so fast, right? Crazy. I know. And we may plan to have many episodes during the summer, but we will see. So, but but for sure, in the fall, we will be back for season three with exciting guests already lined up. Well, I think Nicholas is here. So, oh. shall we get the show started? Yes. You're listening to The Piano Pot, where we talk to the brightest minds in the industry about how they are bringing the piano into the 21st century. We are so delighted to introduce our guest of Season 2 finale, Mr. Nicholas McCarthy one-handed international concert pianist, Yamaha artist, and motivational speaker. Born without a right hand, he was told he would never succeed as a concert pianist, yet Mr. McCarthy refused to be discouraged and went on to study at one of the world's most prestigious music schools, the Royal College of Music in London, where he became the first one-handed pianist to graduate in its 135-year history. Mr. McCarthy has performed extensively in the United Kingdom as well as internationally. His concert performances, recordings, and press coverage have drawn critical acclaim, and he continues to encourage young people through his work in music education. As a speaker, Mr. McCarthy has created and delivered high-impact keynote talks for the world's most dynamic brands. He has helped companies motivate their workforce, improving profitability and loyalty by sharing his truly unique and inspiring story and teaching them how to operate at a level of peak performance. Nicholas, we're so honored to have you and welcome to our show. And thank you for joining us. Yay. Woo-hoo! 
Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. You know what? I've been following you guys on Instagram. I've been listening to the podcast, of course. And you know what? It's just such a privilege to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're a really big fan. And so currently, where are you tuning in from today? So I'm in my home, which is in Colchester, UK. So I'm about an hour, just under an hour outside of London. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm in my studio, which I have at home. Um, wow. My new studio, I was, I think I mentioned to you earlier, right? It was only newly built in June. So I'm still a bit like, oh, it's my favorite place. <laughs> wow. It looks amazing. Beautiful piano in the background. It is just, I, I love the lighting and everything. It just looks so, so like uh, professional and obviously you're a professional pianist, but yeah, it's very well, it beautiful. Needs some, it needs some things on the walls. You know, it's still a bit blank, but you know, we'll get there. We'll get okay. there. <laughs> Sound, sounds great. Thank you. So, as we mentioned, you know, um, I actually I discovered you when I was uh, watching YouTube clips, and obviously, mm. the one video to another led me to your TED talk, and I was really blown away your sto- by your story, and you had to beat the odds to be who you are. And so, um, so I'm, I'm really curious to know, and I love the story of how you discover the music and love of music. And so can you start from, can we start from there? How did you discover yeah, the start, love? Absolutely. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So start from the beginning. I mean, I come from just a really normal background. My, my parents, I'm an only child and my my both sets of parents, you know, they were, they were fantastic supportive, fantastic parents. Mm. Um, but there was no music in my household. You know, my mum and dad aren't musicians at all. None mm. of my family were musicians. So I kind of grew up with a very music-free childhood, apart from maybe what my mum and dad would listen to on the radio, pop songs or, you know, whatever that would, was in the mm. charts that they might listen to. Um, but apart from that, you know, I, didn't, I certainly didn't have any musical influence growing mm. up. And then it wasn't until I was 14... And I, you know, I went to normal state school and, and uh, we had a very fantastic pianist in, in my school called Hanako Amori, who's now a hugely successful session musician and composer wow. and producer in her own right, but more in the electronic music field now as mm. opposed to classical. But she's a beautifully trained and, and very highly trained classical pianist. Mm. And she, and we're still great friends, great friends today, and she performed and, uh, and I had one of those moments in my life where a bit like you see on you know Oprah or something where someone <laughs> talks about this one moment in their mm. life which changed things for them completely and this was one of those moments my friend played uh, Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata the first mm. movement mm-hmm. and I'd never of course never heard heard this mm. before mm. and I absolutely fell in love with the piano and fell in love with everything to do with the instrument how beautiful the instrument looks how it sounds mm-hmm. how People look at the piano as well. I think it's a very elegant way, you know, to sit. And I just loved everything about about mm. the instrument and the sound I was hearing. So very quickly, you know, mm. bear in mind I was 14, I think a bit of teenage invincibility mm. set in. You know, I can be an astronaut. I can do, you know, it, it feels very easy when you're a teenager, doesn't it? To be able mm. to do anything mm. like, you know, fly to the moon, whatever. It seems so achievable. Um and that teenage invincibility definitely helped me because obviously I decided there and then 
that not only did I want to learn the piano, but I also wanted to become a concert pianist. I wanted to to do it for my career. That's what mm. I wanted to do for my full profession. And I thank that teenage invincibility because I think it was because of that that mm. it enabled me to kind of ignore the fact that I only had one hand, to ignore the fact that that could potentially be an obstacle for me. Mm. Um, and it now enabled me just to kind of push through with that with those rose-tinted glasses that teenagers tend to have. And I think that was a really positive thing for me. Um, so yeah, so that's how really that was the spark wow. that ignited the, the very beginning of, of obviously my, my learning. Hmm. But you know, that's, that's so amazing. And, you know, I, I, I am a pianist and Clara too. And we had this one of those moments, oh, there is that moment where I want to pursue piano as my career, right? But I never had this boom, huge moment because, because I started learning piano such a young age so it was a kind of a gradual natural thing as opposed to you didn't have you know much background then all of a sudden you hear this Beethoven Waldstein and here you are what what's the sensation you felt I want to know was it the the music or was it the artist who was playing the piano or, or it was was it the overall experience It was a complete sensory overload for me. You know, it was the overall experience. Hearing that, you know, fantastic music, hearing such repertoire, such as Beethoven Feldstein, which I'd never heard before. So my ears, it was like, wow, what, you know, what is this? All these wonderful harmonies and things which are, were completely foreign to me. Mm. Also the technicality, you know, the technical aspect, you know, it's incredibly difficult. Mm. And, you know, wow, this is amazing. And also hearing a, an instrument like that, like mm. a piano, being able to create these sounds, which was just so unfamiliar. And I think it was that mm. whole combination of everything that mm. was like, made me sit up and think, you know what, actually this, this has really piqued my interest. And this is, this is where I want to take my life, essentially. Wow, that's so, it was that's Beethoven. so. You know, I, I, I remember this um, story of yours actually very well from several years ago when I listened. I think this is, you did the uh, podcast with Tim Ferriss. This is even before the pandemic started, right? Um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was good. That was a good few years ago. Yeah. That's right. And I, I used to, you know, be traveling around on the train, you know, before the pandemic started. And I was always listening to podcasts. And I remember that episode of yours so vividly. I, I even shared with my students and, uh, you know, of this movement, because we have a lot of these teenage students and they've been playing their whole life. And but at some point, you know, it's like, you know, we as pianists sometimes get lost. So I remember sharing this uh, clip and they were fascinated, you know, just like me. So that's amazing. Wow. Thank you for oh, sharing. Well, thank you. Well, yeah, likewise. I mean, I suppose it is quite an interesting start, especially as well, because as you know, and I assume that you learned piano very, very young. It all started mm -hmm. piano very young, like most pianists do tend to, mm -hmm. or musicians generally, tend to start their instruments fairly at a fairly young age. It's just the natural progression of things. And then for me, obviously, to come to it at the age of 14 from nothing, I think that was also a positive and a negative for me because it meant that, one, it was all on me. Mm -hmm. And it was my choice and it was my, it was me controlling. It was me in the driving seat. The, the negative was, and as you're both pianists, you will appreciate this, is that the, the technical aspects that I, you know, yeah. I had years upon years upon years of catch up mm -hmm. to do in order to get to the level that I wanted to get to. And mm -hmm. um, so that was the negative and that was, but you know, it was, I knew I had to, to work incredibly hard if I wanted to close mm -hmm. those gaps. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's what I did. But it was my choice to take up the challenge. And then you really had no training at all before you were 14. I remember. I no, none, 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 none at all. Literally, I barely, I, I didn't even know, you know, every good boy serves football on the stage <laughs> to try oh to, to try to do and So it was like, even that I used to, I used to kind of write how much, and I used to teach myself how to read music and, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it was a real, it was, of course, it was a really tough, but because it was my decision, I was so excited okay. by the prospect of yep. you know learning and, and playing and and so it was a self-fulfilling prophecy really because mm-hmm. I was finding it difficult but then I was working so hard so then I was getting better and then it was this circle when because I was getting better I'd play more and then it was you know and it, and it was just it was started to snowball all the time and travel along which was which was great for me because mm-hmm. you know at least I was seeing some progress quite quick um, yeah. because I enjoyed it so much because I loved it so much really. Mm-hmm. In terms of, you had to probably overcome a lot of obstacles. And although you have, I mean, I'm really, your your positive energy is beaming through this screen. Like you, you just treat yourself like as if you are like real regular pianist, but you had to overcome a lot probably. And of so of course, and then one of the things would be, let's say as simple as, I don't. I didn't think this way before, but most of the literature, even the method books, are written for two hands, mm. right? So, what was it like the first lesson? And the, you know, uh, did did you probably you had to use the two-handed piano literature for you to take lessons? So yeah. So what I did, how I started was I um, and I call my my little this is what I call my little art affectionately mm-hmm. called my little <laughs> and so I could I can actually play like one single note on the mm-hmm. piano with with my little arm and then my left hand can play so for instance a mo- very simple Mozart sonata with one melody line and an Alberti bass for instance mm-hmm. in the left hand I would be able to play fine but obviously as soon as chords come into the right hand mm-hmm. then obviously mm-hmm. I can't but mm-hmm. often I would be able to take one of the notes of the chords with my left hand and spread mm-hmm. the rest. You know, like there's ways of getting around it as we as we can all see in piano. There's lots of different finger patterns that we can use to get around certain obstacles. Um, and so I actually started doing my grades, my my associated boards grades with mm-hmm. two hands, as in in my case, one and a half hands. So mm-hmm. I would play, you know, a two-handed repertoire, but I'd play it with my little arm and my left hand. And that's how I started my grades. And it wasn't until I auditioned for the junior guilds hall. Mm-hmm. Um, school of music and drama when I was 17 what mm-hmm. they then introduced me to left hand alone repertoire and kind of encouraged me and, and and said look we can offer you a place but you have mm-hmm. to specialize in left hand alone repertoire and you've got to stop playing kind of two-handed repertoire with your little arm on your left hand um so that's where I so really it was 17 when I kind of first in, got introduced because remember you know like I said I come from a non-musical background so I'd never heard of left-hand repertoire my mm. teacher who was a young student herself and still learning she also hadn't heard of left-hand repertoire either so really it wasn't until I went to London and started studying as a junior that's when I was like oh okay there's this whole repertoire for left-hand alone um and that's that's how it kind of started so yeah you're you're right I had to lots of adaptations with two-handed repertoire um and then when I went into the the other big hurdle and the big problem that I found was when I was even though I was you know obviously an accomplished player at that stage at 17 and I was able to you know get into the junior guild tour for instance I all of left-hand repertoire tends to be very difficult it tends to be very 
virtuosic, very high level, as you probably have have discovered in your own in your own learning and your own teaching Absolutely. and practice and everything. So I'm like, I probably shouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have if I had two hands. I certainly wouldn't be playing Liszt etudes and Chopin mm. etudes, you know, all the big ones. I would have maybe started at like Mozart sonatas and maybe gone on to a Clementi sonata or something like that, and then gone on to the big stuff later on. Whereas for me, I didn't have that option, so I had to go straight into all of the really big stuff um which was again there was positives and negatives to it the positives I think were it it raised my bar so even though it was too difficult for me and, and my technique wasn't up to it at the time it raised my bar so I knew that actually if I want to play this repertoire and I'm going to have to play this repertoire if I want to be a concert pianist I'm going to have to get my technique infinitely better than it was in order so I can get there so it was it was great in a way because it gave me a good learning curve of thinking, right. wow, well, I need I need to be over there and I'm over here currently. How do I get there? You know? So that's how I right, felt. Right. So I started like that and I started intense, um, intense technical exercises, really, really honing my technique and really, really catching up, you know, like I mentioned, catching up on the years that I've missed of, of not learning from a young age. Right. And um, and yeah, and then obviously I I I achieved that and managed to, you know, managed to to, to get that bit sorted. That's really amazing, Nicholas. And I, I mean, I have so many questions, but this one I also just thought of as we're speaking, you know, how many hours did you have to put in every day to, you know, within it three was, years yeah. of life, you got so yeah. much done. Yeah, I, I kind of did achieve quite a lot in three years. I, because I loved it so much, Yeah, it was kind of just a hobby. It wasn't so, you know, I, I never kind of thought, oh, I need to kind of practice. Mm-hmm. And it didn't yeah, ever sure. feel like practice. It felt, I just couldn't wait to get to the piano, you know, yeah. and it was just, I was there for hours and hours and hours. So I probably averaged around four or five hours a day, okay. maybe at right. that point. Now, you know, I've never practiced that amount of time now. You know, I, <laughs> no, I, I always, I always, <laughs> I always do kind of three hours and that's, that's it. I, I won't do any more. Um, but back then, you know, I was, I was practicing an awful lot. And, uh, and, and again, it's because I had to prove myself. I, I knew I wanted to, to go to certain places. I obviously had my sights set on the Royal College of Music. And right. so I knew that was going to be a huge challenge. Yeah, so I was trying to kind of always look ahead a little bit and right. think, well, if I can do as much now as I can, then I by the time I get to, to audition... Right, use this sort of, uh, you know, speaking to our students or all the students around that age, you know, it's never too late, right? You know, I, I, I myself, I have some students who, you know, they played in Carnegie Hall when they were younger and now they're like 14, 15, they're busy at school and they're just like, it's too late. You know, I'm not going, never going to become Long Long or whoever, you yeah, know, yeah. so like, yeah. what's the point? I mean, or most of their friends stopped and so but you know and they don't want to stop but I think you know which I understand I also I can relate to you a little you know I, I didn't grow up from a musical back you know background that nobody in my family was but I kind of made a silly decision when I was three to become a pianist which I had no idea why and I just decided so you know I was always looking at it very differently from most of my friends and somehow but I want to hear I remember uh, from the podcast uh, you had shared about this uh, beginning teacher uh, who was quite supportive and she you know at at one point when she um, I believe you mentioned that it was almost your level surpassed her very quickly and she had to introduce you to other teachers. 
Yeah, that's correct. So my first teacher, who I who I did a few of the associated board exams with, and then she, you know, she was a young music student herself, and I loved her. She was so cool, and I I kind of looked up to her because she was, you know, she was young and and vibrant, and she she didn't she really thought outside of the box, you know, because I, obviously I was her first disabled, you know, student yeah. and one handed student. She'd never taught that, and she was very encouraging and very kind of forward thinking and, and I think I needed that at that age for sure and then so yes you're right she she came to me and my parents and I remember this conversation like it was yesterday where she came she came to us and said look Nicholas is playing pieces that I um, I can't really play myself and I just feel like he needs to go and spread his wings and go to music school and uh, and that's where she encouraged me to obviously audition for for a music school and subsequently I went to the junior guild hall but um yeah so she was she was a great first teacher to have for sure and again we're still in touch in touch today oh that's great yeah well shout out to her you know I, I hope she get to listen to this interview what about your other friends or you know I don't know your parents have always been very supportive but you know when you said you were going to perform this career what what's your peers you know what did they say I mean, I think with with my, uh, you know, I've always been very fortunate. I've always had a very large group of friends and, mm. you know, from all different backgrounds and, and very supportive. And, and I think for them, they, it's funny, I don't think they were particularly shocked that I said that I was going to be a pianist. I don't know, they kind of, and especially at that age, you know, because I was, you know, at that point, 14, 15, um, you know, it was like, oh, okay, oh, great. That would be great. I don't think people, you know, you. I think as a teenager, you don't really have those prejudices yet. And that kind of sadly comes later on with being an adult or different things that happen to you that kind of changes your attitude towards things. Whereas as a teenager, it's all, like I said earlier, everything's very possible. And I think that's that was the uh, unique thing. So, yeah, my friends were very supportive. They loved it. But at the same time, it was like I learned something and play, played in something. They're like, oh, great, should we go out now? You know, it wasn't, an, it wasn't a big thing to them. They, you know, it was great. They enjoyed the fact that I enjoyed it, but, you know, that's essentially amazing. I was just I was just Nick <laughs> Nick to them right. that was all it was exactly wow I wonder if you have always had this uh, very positive you know outlook in life and you know maybe your friends were influenced by that too now let's talk about fast forward then you got into the guild school right guild, guild hall school of music and drama and the later Royal College of Music which you were the first person in 135 years to have graduated there. And, you know, I remember that from the TED Talk, too. That was just, what was that like? I mean, I know when you got there, you mentioned that you didn't mention to them about this, you know, <laughs> and uh, of your hand, right? <laughs> and you, but I'm sure they were very impressed in the beginning. And uh, I but, think, uh, yeah, I mean. The Guildhall was a very difficult time for me um, because obviously I went to, as I mentioned, went to normal state school. So as a pianist, I was kind of, you know, the great pianist in my school and it was great. And, you know, everyone's, oh, Nick's amazing at piano. Then I went to the Junior Guildhall where all of a sudden I'm with people who've been playing Beethoven concerto since they were like five. Yeah. And then I, you know, I'd never, I'd never, you know, even played a recital yet. I'd never done, done anything at that point. So all of a sudden I was a very small fish in a very big pond yes whereas in my old school mm -hmm. I was a big fish in a very small pond so that was hard to in a, and it was good because it made again like I said it made me raise my bar it made me realize well these are amazing and I'm nowhere near that 
I'm going to work harder to try and get there. Also, you know, my, my teachers at the time were, I mean, it, it, was a, it was just a difficult time. It was a mm. difficult time. I felt that I was very much expected to be one thing and that isn't what I wanted to do. And I felt I was constrained very much and not necessarily supported in the right way. Um, which was a shame. It was a mm. shame, but mm. it is what it is. And again, it was it was great life lessons for me there. So to, to be honest, I didn't particularly enjoy my time at the Junior Guildhall. Mm. And I had, like I said, I always during that time had my sights set on the Royal College of Music, which I was countless, countlessly by various different people, including my, you know, my, my tutors and things, um, dissuaded from applying to even. Mm. But I absolutely knew that was my dream was to go and study at the Royal College of Music. Because mm-hmm. I used to think, you know, what better place to, to study right opposite the Royal Albert Hall in London. You know, I'm, I was thinking when you're practising, you're tired and, you know, just looking out the window and seeing one right. of the best concert halls in the world is going to draw inspiration. It's going to make you give that extra little bit more practice, that extra, mm-hmm. extra time. Mm-hmm. So I really, really wanted to go there. So, um, you know, I auditioned. I, I auditioned with all the conservatoires in the UK, to be honest, because obviously mm-hmm. I didn't know that, you know, I wasn't going to just hope the Royal College took me. Um, and, yeah, and obviously to my surprise, I got offered, you know, numerous scholarships from, from various different conservatoires. And uh, and the Royal College was was the one that I, I chose to go to. And it was it was an amazing moment. I, I kind of, it was a pinch, pinch myself moment because I've mm-hmm. been told so many times, I wouldn't get in mm, to the yes. Royal College. Mm. It was even more of a of a of a thing for me because I was like, wow, I trusted my instincts mm-hmm. and and worked incredibly hard. I didn't just, you know, sit back. I mean, when you know, when I was being told no from all these mm. different angles, I then elevated my practice. Right. I, I'm all about trying to, you know, any any negativity that comes my way I'm all about trying to use that in a positive way mm. and for me the negativity that I was receiving at the time prior to, to going to the Royal College of Music I was using to force it into my practice yeah. and using that kind of anger to, to, to really build me up mm. so that when I w- went in and auditioned I was kind of you know at the height of, of my game at that point and mm. um, so yeah so obviously that hard work paid off so yeah, and then right. I had a fantastic four years. I loved the Royal College of Music. I had a fantastic four years there. You know, mm. it's it's a wonderful institution. And again, they they thought outside of the box with me. Mm. They mm. they you know they they treated me exactly the same. I wasn't given any easy treatment or anything, but mm-hmm. they allowed me, you know, obviously part of the repertoire requirements, you have to play a Beethoven sonata. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, I I mm. can't play a Beethoven sonata because mm. there's Beethoven didn't write anything for left hand so they were happy for me to to offer a substitute mm. um you know I'll, I'll try and find something with sim- similar difficulty similar mm. sounding maybe you know but it will be obviously 20th century mm. so they were really flexible like that because you mm. know they realized I couldn't just you know I, I wish Beethoven did write something for left hand <laughs> but he didn't so I can't conjure it up out of nowhere. Mm. So they, they were really flexible in, in that sense. But like I said, they, they marked me exactly the same way that they did everyone else, which again, I was pleased with because that's, that's what I wanted. I like being treated the same way. I wanted to be held accountable to the same level as all the other high, you know, super high standard pianists mm. that we had there at the time. And still now, I mean, it's, it's you know, going from strength to strength as an institution. So yeah, very proud to be in an alumni from the Royal College. It takes just one person who just sees your potentials and and of course you have this amazing positive 
way of thinking and even negativity you use it against against it that that's really um inspiring and we we want to talk more about that side of you later uh which you know right now currently you are a motivational speaker so let's right now i want to focus a little bit more as you as a pianist so after you graduate yeah. you have this amazing career you're still um you know uh performing and then recording as well that once stood out to me was this um the paralympics 2012 in london and you performed at the that, that was a closing th- ceremony that's it yeah it was a closing ceremony and mm-hmm. I performed with the parrot orchestra and also with Colt the band Coldplay and Coldplay. that was really the turning point for me hmm. because you know I hadn't I'd graduated only you know the month before that happened <laughs> and uh, and you know I had an empty diary of no concerts coming up no you know no anything and I got invited to to perform with with the Parrot Orchestra and with Coldplay and it was a, obviously a huge opportunity and I really I mean it was so special it was su- such a special moment but really that launched my career because it was it was launched it was viewed by half a billion people mm-hmm. worldwide mm-hmm. and because in the UK in the UK especially because I was then because I'd done quite a lot of media stuff before mm-hmm. you know I'd been on TV quite a lot I've done a lot of radio and things so all of the 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 producers and things they kind of were calling me to go back on to talk about the paralympics to talk about coldplay and and all of the wonderful things that were happening and of course i took those opportunities that were that were given to me and that i think it was that that really because you know very shortly after that that's when i was invited to to start my international touring and and you know towards south korea and towards south africa and america and all of these wow. places which you know all came off of the back of that mm-hmm. so yeah it was really a lucky timing for me because obviously mm-hmm. i'd only graduated a couple of uh, months before six weeks mm-hmm. before um but you know i definitely have that moment to thank speaking of that then you mentioned about this you know afterwards you have this huge international career so and you seem to have a lot of fans all over the world particularly in asia i noticed <laughs> and, and yeah. i yeah you had i think last time i emailed you or messaged to you uh, via instagram you said you were in hong kong were you in hong kong well i sadly i was meant to be in hong kong i've actually i've actually meant to have been in hong kong for two two years in a row because of the pandemic and mm-hmm. obviously yeah. they are still very much in quarantine you know have to quarantine 21 days when you go in and um, so sadly I had to say I can't go in but mm. it was with the Hong Kong No Limits Festival so we did yes. it here so I, I played with the Manchester Camerata here yeah. and it was streamed I think it was um it was into Hong Kong cinemas for a day for one night only and then there was you can view it online and things like that so so I was still part of the festival but it was remote so I'm hoping <laughs> To get to Hong Kong one day soon would be nice because obviously for two years now I've not quite mm-hmm. managed to get there in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I realized about the uh, project. It, I think they're still streaming uh, as of yeah, now. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's I think it's still streaming now. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wonderful. So then you're obviously performing all the left hand piano literature, and so we want to. I want to focus on more on left hand literature, and then I didn't realize until. Uh, I started to learning about you and repertoire for the left hand first came in early 19th century. It's started as you're so correct. It started in the early 19th century and it's because concert pianists or composers back then take Liszt, for example, we know that he was a fantastic composer and a fantastic pianist, you know, mm-hmm. performing a performing concert pianist. And um, 
that was often the case, you know, Bartok, he was a composer and pianist, and, you know, it was, it was always often the case. And often when they were performing their concerts, they would play on irony, because most people in, in the world are, are right-handed. Mm. So your left hand tends to be your naturally weaker hand. Yes. And uh, so the composer would play a left hand alone piece mm-hmm. Mm. as a bit of a play on irony. You know, you mm. thought I was good with two hands. Wait and see what I can do with my weak hand, my left right. hand. Right. And so they play this big bravura piece and mm. the crowd would go wild. That's an encore or something. And the crowd would go wild. Mm. And then obviously we fast forward mm. in time and the First World War happened. And mm. again, for the same reasons, if you were in a, in a war situation, mm. most people are right handed. Therefore, statistically, you're more likely to injure or lose your right hand in battle. I so see. we had hundreds of thousands of servicemen coming back from from war and they had their, their right arm injured mm. or missing or, or you know or amputated mm. and then one particular man Paul Wittgenstein you know mm-hmm. the most famous mm-hmm. left-hand pianist mm-hmm. he came back and used his position in society his mm-hmm. his wealth he was a hugely wealthy man from the Wittgenstein mm-hmm. um family and he commissioned all of the really big celebrity composers of the day mm-hmm. to write mm-hmm. for this already present left-hand tradition so he expanded on the 19th century and obviously this is in 20th century now Mm -hmm. so then all of a sudden we get this huge influx of huge commissions by Prokofiev and Benjamin Britten and Richard Mm -hmm. Strauss and obviously Ravel Mm -hmm. and all of these really huge names of the 20th century then Mm -hmm. were writing left-hand alone work so the repertoire very quickly expanded during that time so then and thankfully that meant we had 19th century rep and We've got mm. a really huge bulk of 20th century repertoire. Um, so, yeah, I mean, really, thanks to him and thanks to Paul Wittgenstein and his yeah. steely determination of how to carry on his career, he's mm. the reason really why I'm then able to go out and play Ravel's left-hand concerto, Britain's Diversions, and all of these these concertos. And, you know, there's, there's I think, the current count is something like 32 piano mm. concertos for left-hand. Wow. You know, obviously... Most of the time I get asked to play the Ravel left-hand concerto mm-hmm. or, or Britain Diversions. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, you know, there's so many other wonderful works which I haven't, ha- haven't had the opportunity to perform myself yet because mm-hmm. that's the thing, you know, it then comes down to programming. And mm-hmm. you know, if you think, if, if I owned a concert hall that, that sat 10,000 people, mm-hmm. I know that Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto is going mm-hmm. to be far more popular than mm. if I wrote, if I programmed one of these lesser known concertos for left hand. So of course I understand that and how that works. Mm. Um, but of, unfortunately it leaves that the, these concertos, even though they're in my repertoire, mm. they haven't actually, I haven't actually performed them with orchestra yet. Right. So. It's, it's amazing how these historical backgrounds affect, you know, the, even the piano literature, how it's evolved. I've heard you playing, um, what's his name, uh, Godowski, left hand yeah. etude that, that's one of the most difficult things ever to do it's it tricky <laughs> yes i i know and i tried a few just because you know i'm right-handed so just to make the left hand stronger i've tried a few oh they were, they were just so impossible but yeah, wonderful tricky. yeah and then but you also arrange some pieces for yourself and uh, i've heard you you play your rendition of prelude in g minor by rachmaninoff and yeah, yeah do you like doing arranging? Well, I, I, I do actually. It's um, I don't do it as much as I, I, I probably should or or maybe used to. I found that when I was touring, it was really mainly in in the UK, and when my first album came out, um, solo, the uh, 
I realised that audiences, because most people with my repertoire being left-hand pianists, they won't have heard, you know, the square, not necessarily heard maybe Scriabin's Prelude and Nocturne, or they might not have heard Bart Brahms' Chacon or something like that. Right. So I was very keen to provide some short kind of three-minute pieces of music that perhaps they have heard of, mm -hmm. because I found that audience members because I have a real mixed bag of audiences. So I have obviously a core classical audience members who, mm -hmm. who come to me because, you know, classical, they love classical music. But I've also got a lot of fans who really don't go to anything to do with classical music, but they come to the concert because of me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they might have seen me on television, thought it might be interesting, and then they've gone to that. Mm -hmm. And so I found that those audience members mm -hmm. were much more open to listening to something, I don't know, like like I mentioned, like the Bart Brahms Chacon, which is 14 minutes long. You know, it's quite mm -hmm. hard to listen to for an audience right. member who it maybe isn't used to classical music. Mm -hmm. They were much more open to listening to that and would love it and it would open their ears if I punctuated it with some familiar music that they would have heard from an advert or they would have heard somewhere. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I found that they were just more much more receptive to listening to all this repertoire which they've never heard of you know mm -hmm. and so that's why I started doing you know a few small arrangements really to, to kind of help that side of my audience to, to try and kind of make them feel a little bit more comfortable with mm -hmm. then the really quite hard hitting stuff that I might be playing later on um, mm -hmm. but I enjoy doing it a, a lot actually I wouldn't say I'm amazing you know that I think there's some pieces who some pieces that I think are perfect, a perfect arrangement for left hand. Mm. And there's other pieces where I think oh, I'd love to arrange that and it just doesn't work. You know, it just, mm. it's just not, not, going, not going to work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good process. I quite enjoy the process actually. I've heard your both two albums. Uh, one is called Solo. The other one is called Echoes. And, right. and then some of them are your arrangements, right? Yeah, some of them are, are my arrangements. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of them, I think on Echo, actually on Solo and Echo, there's a wonderful arranger um, and, uh, you know, composer, pianist and arranger called Frederick Minders, who's based, I think he's based in Spain now, but he's originally from the Netherlands. And he um, has arranged a lot of work for Left Hand Alone very, very successfully. Um, so I really enjoy playing his work. And with mm -hmm. the Rachmaninoff G minor prelude, um, that's a bit of a collaboration between another fantastic pianist called Arthur Simero, who's based in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And uh, we kind of collabed a little bit on that on that work. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of came up with the idea and I kind of had it all done. Mm -hmm. And then I said to him, but I'm really struggling with the middle section. And then he kind of went, oh my God, he said, don't worry. I, and he sent the middle section and we kind of, you know, we almost kind of put both of our versions together a little bit to create the one that I play now. Oh. Um, so yeah, so it, it's nice because I get to collaborate a little bit with with some composers and some arrangers around the world, um, and then of course I've done my my own ones from you know from scratch like Gershwin Summertime and right. and uh, yeah. you know Cavalier oh, Rostocana from there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you know, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I've, I've listened to all of them. Now, so then speaking of that, do you really do you wish to have more left-handed pieces, not limited to just usual classical pieces, but in different genres and styles and maybe original compositions and have you yeah I mean I'm a big part of what I try to do and actually I'm just in the process of, of I mean I, I can't talk about it kind of fully yet but um I'm really looking forward to having a vehicle to be able to keep expanding the repertoire just like Paul Wittgenstein did now sadly I'm not 
from a wealthy oil magnet or steel magnet father <laughs> like Paul Wittgenstein where he has you know infinite amount of money unfortunately right. that that wasn't afforded to me but um, I, I, yes, but I am in the process now of creating a, a vehicle if you like that I can more easily commission new works new concertos new chamber music and mm-hmm. um, for the left hand alone because I think it's so important to to keep that legacy alive and to do what Wittgenstein did so that maybe in a hundred years time there's another one-handed pianist who's thanking me for mm-hmm. certain repertoire just like I thank Wittgenstein for you know like Ravel's left hand concerto for instance so mm-hmm. it's very important and to me and I'm very passionate about it and I'm, I'm excited about this mm. this next little chapter so I'll obviously keep you posted about it anyway as, as, yeah. and, when it, uh, as and when it develops. So I know you are a motivational speaker uh, which is something I'm also very passionate of you know I have done Tony Robbins and I have been a long time student of Landmark and you know so uh, I do believe sometimes it doesn't matter what we want to do but having a very positive um, you know, heart sometimes could really make things happen, right? And mm-hmm. so one thing that I, I was really thinking, you know, of one-handed, I mean, in my experience, I think my teacher did mention to me a couple of times also because I was right-handed and my left hand tend to be weaker. But then I remember it was really just several pianists that accidentally injured one hand. And that's how, you know, these one hand repertoires start to coming out. And obviously Yu Jia Wang started performing the uh, Ravel, you know, a a few years ago. And that was also very influential, right? And so, but where did, when did you start uh, your, you know, motivational speaking journey? That was really interesting because I, as you you know, as you know, I, I wanted to be a concert pianist from 14 and that was what I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, I didn't even know what a motivational speaker was. You know, I didn't realise mm. it was such a big thing. And I but I was, again, like lots that's happened in my career, really, that I, I was kind of lucky um, that I was invited to give the biggest TED talk. And I think it's the one that you, you might have seen the TED talk at the Royal Albert Hall. So that was my first ever public speech mm-hmm. and I was invited to give that and that was in front of 6,500 people at the Royal Albert Hall and it's the biggest TED talk to date that they've ever, that they've ever held. Right. And that, so I did that and I loved it and it was great and you know I, I enjoyed it very much. And then very quickly afterwards I was, I was contacted by various different businesses and different big banks and different big real estate companies and things like that to, to say oh we're having a conference and we'd like you to do, do this. And, and, uh, and then it very quickly just became a very large part of what I do in a year mm. um, and so you know it, it was completely organic and it just sure. grew um, but it was it was just one of those things that I, all of a sudden I was being asked to do it and if I was available and I wasn't on tour of course I'd, I'd say yes to do it and it was something that I, I, I love almost as much as the piano because I love yeah. I love people as you can probably tell I love talking I love yes I can and I think with <laughs> And with with a conference situation, you know, when I'm on stage as a pianist with my piano hat on, you know, I walk on stage and people are kind of sat in the audience, they're just looking at me. And it, and it's quite hard to get the rapport and quite hard to get the connection. Even though, I mean, I, I talk through my recitals and give people, you know, interesting anecdotes and historical facts and things. But even then, I'm not doing a question and answer session from mm-hmm. stage, you know, wherever. Whereas in a conference situation, I'm much more able to have a dialogue with, with the delegates and and that's something which I really love and I love you know the Q&A afterwards yeah. and all of these things and um, so it, it, I'm, I feel I count myself very fortunate for, for some of the brands that I've, I've worked with and continue to work with you know they, they 
it's it's been amazing and again I would never have imagined that would be the case when I first got and invited I, to do that TED talk <laughs> right and I must say that you must feel so comfortable in front of large crowd I mean you know again I'm just thinking that you know, again, I'm sure Yukimi and I both have this experience. We start performing very young and our students too, but still there are some part of you, you know, nervousness always comes up. And you said you, you got to play in this concert at, for the Olympics. It was 86,000 people, right? And all of a sudden yeah. you are just in front of this many people. Did you ever feel anything that was, you know, like intense inside? Like, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, I mean, I remember. Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I and you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I got a little bit nervous. And you know right. what it's like, the more you, the more you're used to something and, you know, yeah. the more you're in front of large audiences, the more normal it becomes. And, you mm. know, the nerves maybe aren't quite as at the forefront of, of my mind or my body as, as they probably were. And I think the funny thing is, is during the pandemic, Mm. Um, obviously, my, you know, all concert work, as we all know, that that stopped. And I did a few online concerts, and I didn't enjoy doing the online concerts no. from home. I, it's not, my, it wasn't my thing. But um, my uh, my motivation speaking went up exponentially because of all the big, you know, all the big companies that I work with were having, you know, conferences online. So they were demanding, you know, they still needed a speaker to tune in and then to kind of give a motivational speech during the conference. So that's where I was doing it. I was doing it here from, you know, for instance, here from the studio once it was built. And I and that, again, that was different. And I, I probably got a little bit more nervous doing that in front of my camera. Yeah. In, even though there might have been 4,000 people in this conference watching me on camera, I couldn't see any of them. And exactly. so that was almost more nerve wracking in a way than actually, actually being there. Being able to see people, you know, being able yeah. to feel that atmosphere. That's amazing. Did this a like positive mindset? Did, did, were you just born with it? Do you? Where do you think? I probably think. I probably think Where? I have. I think that having a having a disability, I think, always mm -hmm. gives you a little bit of a different perspective to things. And um, you've, you know, I've always had to think about doing things in a slightly different way to to other people, perhaps. Um, and I think that that constant attitude and constant challenge also mm. gives me a little bit of a different perspective on life and um, so yeah I think I've kind of always <laughs> always been like yeah. that but again don't get me wrong you know there's some days where I'm a bit like oh, you know because it's just being a human being but generally you know I think it's uh it's 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 good to be positive if I can that is so beautiful and I can I, yeah can I sneak in sorry so I mean speaking of this so everybody has challenges and then sometimes it's visible sometimes those challenges are not visible right and mm -hmm. your case it's obviously visible and um so sometimes we tend to cling on to those challenges as al almost like an excuse like you know because i'd rather stick oh because i have this problem so i can't do or because oh this thing didn't happen because of this challenge so how do you alter that? Obviously, I, I admire you as a pianist, not because you're one-handed, but you're an incredible artist, your musicality. But so how do you brand yourself? Do you want, the balance is hard, right? Because you want to be considered as an incredible artist because of your musical musicality expressions and you, your dedication to instrument. But there is a fact of, you are one-handed pianist. So that balance is 
sort of it, it's, it's quite tricky to do yeah right? I think for, for me I've always been you know and as you know and I think being a speaker is a big part of my, my job anyway I'm always very comfortable about speaking about myself speaking about disability speaking about my challenges and so I suppose I'm very used to being quite vulnerable though I'm quite happy putting myself in a vulnerable position you know emotionally and I think for me I was always very keen to just communicate whether it's on stage speaking at a TED talk whether it's me communicating via music on stage at a recital I want to communicate to as many people in on this earth as I possibly can in my lifetime and I don't care if the only reason why they're there at the concert is because they see me or heard me on radio and they they find it intriguing that I've got one arm they've got no interest in classical music but they're there yeah. And that makes me quite happy because I've managed to convert someone who would never have gone to see Yuja Wang, for instance, never mm. would have gone to see Langland because they're not mm. interested in classical mm. music. Mm. But they've managed to come to my concert mm. because of intrigue due to the fact that I have one hand. Mm. I don't care. If that's the reason they're there, they're still there. And I'm really pleased. And then often that's happened where people have come to me and they've said, after the concert, I've never been to a piano recital before in my life, and you're the first one, and I'm I love it. And then all of a sudden, they're in touch with me online, and they've gone to see different artists, and then they've come back to one of my recitals. All of a sudden, just that little bit of intrigue mm. and that little bit of curiosity on their mm. part about me and my arm has actually sparked something in them where actually they do like classical music, they do like right. piano music, they have gone to see Yuja Wang playing Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, there, and all of these things they would never have done before. Mm. all because they were a curious human being so I'm I'm always very happy with that and I don't I don't mind the fact that they're the only reason they were there in the first place was just human curiosity mm. I think you know it's fine it got them there so wow. and you were saying you know when you're in a royal school I mean we have students who take these exams ABRSM you know it's been popular all all through like actually all through the world in in China I believe my cousin's uh my niece were trying to take it and they had to like fly to Hong Kong actually to take the exam you know oh wow wow in mainland China for a while so but I feel like for them to take you in really in a way it's a very unique experience for them as well you know not only just uh, you know it's 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 really both-sided and because for someone like you to be so brave to just go for it you know it's without really knowing like you know in the beginning I'm sure <laughs> within three years of training again I keep on thinking about coming back to that you know and it's it's really not easy you know it's it's not something yeah. that everybody would just be bold enough to say I'm gonna just try it and see what happens yeah you know and uh, when you met Tim Ferriss, I know I'm sure after all these other interviews you have done this probably not even one of the big ones but I Tim Ferriss is the someone who actually got me so interested in uh, podcasting, and you know, so when you keep asked me, and I was like, oh my gosh, because I used to listen to every single episode of his uh, religiously. I read all his books. What was your experience like uh, being interviewed? It was, by him? it was it was wonderful. I mean, he's a, obviously an amazing, amazing guy, and what an honor for me to be asked to be on that podcast, which I think it's got a hundred million downloads. Or, you know, it's just crazy, crazy. And actually, the funny thing is, is after I did that podcast yeah. you know and I've I've done a lot of you know throughout all the world different different television different things it's still the main thing that I would get not recognized for but if someone knows my story 
they've often heard it on Tim Ferriss first. <laughs> um, so that's so it's amazing just his reach that he had it. But you know, it was it was great. And then I, I had the honor of being being included in his Tours of Titans book, which obviously was a Sunday Times, a New York Times bestseller. Um, so you yeah, know, it's 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 great. I love uh, it was a wonderful experience. A very nice guy and a great interviewer. You know, that's why he's known as the Oprah of podcasts because you know he's he's a great interviewer. And likewise, you girls, you're uh, you're following in footsteps. Oh, thank you so, so much. That's, that's, that's great. Any advice for upcoming or young musicians? Um, I would say my main advice would be to try not to get so hung up on social media. I think, mm. you know, it's important and I'm, I'm not saying it's not. And it's probably quite a controversial thing to say, maybe. Mm. Obviously, I'm very lucky and I count myself very lucky that, I, that social media wasn't what it is today when, mm. I, was, when I was growing up kind of Twitter was around and then kind of you know yeah. it, it wasn't a big thing and then and then obviously now it's a completely different piece you know with TikTok and Instagram oh. and, and now everyone's going on to TikTok and no one's liking Instagram as much anymore and it's and you can't keep up with it and I find a lot of hugely talented players and hugely talented um, musicians who are one spending an awful lot of money you know, perfecting their videos and paying for paid promotion on on Instagram or, or TikTok or whatever. And they're getting these huge followings on there. Mm. The thing is that unlike, say, for instance, that I can understand like a beauty vlogger or a beauty person, if you're mm. like, you know, talking about makeup things, it's much easier to earn money from mm. from that sale as in, you know, you put a swipe up link for the mascara that the, the, the girl has just demonstrated. Mm. And then, you know, it's it's quite a transactional thing. Mm. Whereas I think music, people are kind of spending a lot of their time mm. in their studios, in their in their lounges, in their front rooms with their piano, doing these videos, putting them out, getting a following, but it's not translating to anything. It's not translating mm. into concert work it's not translating into for some people it is I'm not you know I'm mm. sure it is there's always anomalies but generally mm. you know it's it's and and then I feel like well you know all of a sudden then when TikTok isn't as big isn't as big as you know if you think Instagram's been huge for so many years now everyone's mm. like oh, I don't like Instagram anymore I like TikTok mm. you know I think it's I think where does it end you know and mm. then I've, I'm very conscious with young artists when I think they they just hope for these viral videos and they hope all of a sudden Carnegie Hall's ringing them up saying can you come and play and unfortunately it just doesn't work like that it doesn't right. work like that sometimes it does with the, with the odd person but it's very rare mm-hmm. so I would say try not to I think you've got to do it you know you've got to be out there as a young person mm-hmm. they're, they're on social media anyway so absolutely do it mm-hmm. and try and get as big following as you can but don't just let it be your sole focus mm-hmm. I think it's a I think our industry and music industry is a different it's, it's different you're not you know mm-hmm. I think if you were a beauty blogger a makeup blogger it's much easier you know for certain right. things so I, and I think sometimes people get hung up on it and I'm seeing it quite a lot I'm seeing quite a lot and it's a shame yeah. because there's often these wonderful artists who mm. they've got no you know look in their diary they've got no concerts but they've got a million TikTok followers you know <laughs> they, 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 there's no correlation between the mm. two you know and that's that's my concern for them I wouldn't want them to waste their time, basically. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That's such yeah. an important, you know, message, actually, mm. really, to the world, too, you know. So, yeah. I know you you have two albums, Solo and Echoes, both available on, on music streaming services. And you have latest, the newest album coming up soon, correct? 
Yeah, so it's not actually an artist album. So it's it's um it's a very much a collaboration. So and it's my first foray into the world of contemporary music, which is quite scary for me because I'm you know I'm I'm a romantic at heart and I like all the you know romantic mm-hmm. music. Um, but you know, I was asked by this wonderful composer called Zadie Harrison, who's also based here in the UK. Um, she wanted to write. I think she'd seen me in concert or something. I can't. I can't remember how she how she knew of me, but she wanted to write for Left Hand Alone and wanted cr- mm. to create an mm. album of of new works for Left Hand Alone. Mm. Um, and so she asked me to be part of the project, and and you know, I said oh, okay. Well, you know, I like to challenge myself. I've never played contemporary music really apart from the odd one or two pieces but um and I said yes and actually it's been wonderful because it's really pushed me out of my comfort zones mm-hmm. it really has which is and I again it's been hard at some parts and some points and um, but I've enjoyed being pushed out of that comfort zone mm-hmm. and so yeah so we're recording the album uh, on the 23rd and 24th of May so it's quickly coming around mm-hmm. and then um I am performing at St George's Bristol the launch concert in September and then obviously the album's out I think you know in in, in the autumn in the fall so um so yeah so that's exciting I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to that and like I say it's, it's been a challenge but I've, I've enjoyed the challenge I've enjoyed the challenge yeah wonderful you're such an uh, inspiring person I mean it sounds so cliche but looking at you in that studio piano in the background and beautiful lighting and how you started you know you were not from the particularly a musical family and how you came to be and seeing that beautiful piano in the background. It just means so much to me how one, I don't know, it takes only this passion and mission, right? To become a musician or pianist. It, it's not about how, it's not about followers. It's not about, you know, went to this school. Oh, obviously you went to a very prestigious school, but um, I think it really means so much. So thank you. Because, oh bless you yeah. thank you so much thank you. thank you are you planning to come to new york anytime soon to perform i would love to you know as well i recorded my first album solo in boston in wgbh studios okay. in boston oh. and then uh, yeah so then so i spent some time in america then and then we came over to new york and i obviously to meet with the record label and everything mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean the only place i've played in america i've played it in washington dc at the kennedy center but mm-hmm. that's the only place i've played so i'm really hoping one day soon that I can um, I can come and perform and obviously dream to play at Carnegie Hall. Oh, you know, one day. Mm. Oh, <laughs> you will. It's gonna happen. Yes, yes. Okay. to be there. Okay, so let's let's get into our fun segment called that piano pod rapid fire questions. So Nicholas, we would love for you to answer these questions with shortest answers possible. Okay. What is your comfort food? Chinese takeaway food. Oh, good. <laughs> Goody. My favorite. Uh, favorite. Oh, well, we can have a party soon. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Dog. What is your word or words to live by? Anything is possible. Hmm. What is the most important quality you look for in other people? Honesty. What is the worst quality in people you want to stay away from? Vanity. Mm. Good Name three people who inspire you, living or dead. Martha Argerich. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teacher, Nigel Clayton, mm. who taught me at the Royal College of Music. Mm. And my parents, because they've always been so supportive at every point. 
So there's two people there. That was four people. It's okay. Great. <laughs> Great. Great. That was important. Name one piece in your current playlist. I have been listening to Bart Goldberg Variations with picking out um, Olufsen, who's just amazing. So, yeah. That's what keeps coming up a lot. And then obviously it's long. So I keep listening to the whole thing like lots of times. <laughs> yeah, right. it's my favorite too. Name one book title in your library. My library. Well, this is an interesting one. This isn't a short one. Well, Duet for Three Hands by Cyril Smith. And so <laughs> Cyril Smith and Phyllis Selleck were a UK piano duo, very famous piano duo. And Cyril Smith had a stroke and lost the use of his left hand. So oh leaving him only, and they were a husband and wife duo. Mm. They both taught at the Royal College of Music and uh, they were, you know, very famous. And so they continued their duo career on two pianos, but with three hands. And there's the book um, about their story and about their marriage. And it's called Duet for Three Hands by Cyril Smith. Wow, wonderful. I need to check it out. Quickly, I just, I, I, I meant to say earlier, you know, I, I was at my teacher's concert a couple of days ago, and he is a pianist, but he also plays with accordionist. And we're, so he's Argentinian, you know, so what he does is that they will make, uh, so this time they did a Chopin piece, where he will play the Chopin piece on the piano, and the accordionist will actually tango it out, you know, so he wow. improvise. he's like the best accordionist in America, you know, but it's just so fascinating that you can actually so you know you, when you were saying that you had you borrowed a friend to play one part so these are the amazing things you know mm -hmm. the young pianists today could mm -hmm. get to do you know absolutely absolutely yeah so another one yep. you get only one song piece to listen to for the rest of your life what is it the slow movement from Ravel's piano concerto in g major the, the mm -hmm. two-handed one the beautiful slow movement i love it Mm -hmm. Oh, that is beautiful. And last question, last not least. Music is fill in the blank. What is music? Life. Life. It is life. Wonderful. Music is life. I bet that's a com I bet that's a common answer. I bet most if you ask that most people say music is life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful. Yes, ding ding. <laughs> Yay. Great. So this concludes this episode of the piano pod. Thank you, Nicholas for thank joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And sharing your stories and insights and expertise. And you can find more information about Nicholas on his website at nicholasmccarthy.co.uk. And we want to encourage our audience to listen to his albums, Solo and Echoes, both available on music streaming services and the latest album to be released in the fall, Pasture and Storm, compositions of British composer Sadie Harrison. All links are listed in the description. And this also concludes season two of The Piano Pod. Thank you to our wonderful audience and the fans for tuning in throughout the season. We'll be back with exciting guests for season three in the fall. If you're interested in being the guest or recommending someone to be on our show as a guest, or if you'd like to uh, collaborate or sponsor with us, Shoot us an email at the pianopodnyc at gmail.com or send us a DM via social media. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review on whatever podcasting platform you use. If you're watching us on YouTube, remember to hit the thumbs up button and be sure to subscribe to our channel. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. The links are in the description below. See you in the fall. Until then, keep practicing the piano and have a great summer. Bye.
Bye, everyone. Bye, Bye Nicholas. Thank you, Nicholas. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you.